Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Hi, Ben. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Uh, you and I were probably having a conversation on LinkedIn or another social media platform probably a month or two ago. And uh, as has been my custom in the midst of the pandemic, I uh, say, hey, let's uh, let's take this conversation to the podcast. And so uh, I think you accepted that invitation. I'm grateful. So we're going to have a conversation today. We're both fundraisers, presumably. And um, so I'm delighted that you're here. Uh, before we dive into our topic of conversation, though, Ben, how about we just let you introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. I'd like to echo that. I'm really excited to be here. And yeah, we connected on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, this is, this is a great conversation to keep going. Um, yeah, my name is Ben Chambers. I live in St. Louis, Missouri. I am a um, man of many hats, I guess. I am the development director at a small nonprofit here in town focused on um, mental health, uh, suicide prevention, especially as, as it relates to um, children, teenagers, adolescents. Um, so re- really important, really timely work right now coming out of the pandemic and uh, just going through a time with tremendous need and also doing some freelance work, connecting with organizations, um, you know, trying to help this sector in any way I can use what what I have to help organizations, um, you know, scale up and reach more people and have a greater impact. So I'm really excited that we have forums like this, too, for people in our profession to come together. Uh, we're doing more and more of that lately, it seems like. And it's really uh, it's really an important thing for us to for us to be able to share these ideas and do this kind of stuff. So, Ben, how long did you say you've been in the field? How long have you been doing this work? I've been doing this for about seven years now. Okay. So when I wrote my first book, one of the things, one of the, the person that I was writing to, uh, was about eight to 10 years, sometimes generally I was thinking about 10 years in. And one of the things that I was thinking about, about that particular person, I'm curious if you're this person as well. Um, given the, given the fact that we're having this conversation, the person who's creeping up on 10 years in is sort of beyond the point of sort of the credentialing, the, I got to get my CFREs. I got to show up for every conference. I got to read every tip and trick, but you're starting to think more carefully and critically about the work that you're doing. Is that where you're at? You couldn't have said it any better. Yeah, absolutely. I've been, (laughs) you know, I love the profession and I, I feel like we never truly know what we're doing in a sense, but I do feel like I've got my feet under me a little bit better than I did maybe, you know, five, six years ago. I've got, I've got those letters behind my name and I've been to all the, uh, you know, all the events, all the things like that. And, um, yeah, it's now it's, it's looking at the nonprofit sector is sort of that view from 30,000 feet and determining kind of where, where do I fit in all this? What, what can I do that both is impactful but aligns with my values and my views of the world and um, 
yeah, that's you. You couldn't have summed it up any better. Yeah, you, you're you're kind of at that place where you're like, okay, for the first five years, sort of proving my competency level. There's a, there's yeah. actually an author at, at Harvard who wrote a book about these two ladders in life, and the thing about the fundraising profession, I don't think I've ever articulated it this way, but. The ladder in fundraising, the ladder, like a ladder that we climb, L-A-D-D-E-R, the ladder, the first ladder, if, if we sort of say that the ladder, you know, is that, is that CFRE point, it's that point where you're five, six years in, you can get that credential, you know, you can actually do that really quickly. And, and I think that's actually both in some ways problematic, but in some ways actually really exciting because what you end up with is you end up with people that are very young. Um, starting to sort of enter into the place where you're at right now, where you're asking these very meaningful questions. And then also you're asking questions that perhaps the CFRE could not have sort of prepped you to ask, you know, they didn't test you on some of these, (laughs) like the ethical, most of the questions that I'm having with guests here on the podcast, they're ethical dilemmas, you know, they're things like, like, you know, it's like, it's crazy shit. It's stuff that you just could not just sort of come up with a quick fix a quick answer sort of thing to, and you have to sort of wrestle with them. Um, you learn a lot about how an annuity works getting a CFRE, but not about the other yeah. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and, and whether or not you want that annuity from that particular donor. <laughs> so Ben, we like to ask our guests to come on here and I don't know what your big idea is. And uh, I'll, sh- I'll point that out to all of our listeners. So we yeah. invite our guests to come on here with a big idea, bold opinion from somebody who like Ben, who's, probably thinking critically about what it is he's doing in life now. Um, And we just like to tackle it. So what do you got for us today? Yeah. So I'll say, you know, and I think kind of the thing that you and I connected over, you know, so many weeks or months ago and that I've been really, um, really thinking a lot about since is, um, you know, inspired by the community centric fundraising movement and the impact that's having on our our whole profession Sure. and relating that to, this moment of reckoning we're having that's been going on for a while in society over systemic racism, oppression, all those different things, and how it relates to the nonprofit sector. How, you know, we sit at a crossroads of a lot of these things. We, obviously, the agencies, organizations we work for serve people all across the spectrum, but especially people who've been victims of a lot of these things. But at the same time, we sit at a point where we know where our funding comes from, and at times that you know, some of those, some of those darker sides of capitalism or some of those, you know, funds that have existed that may have problematic roots are, um, are a factor and that we have a lot of things we have to grapple with. But as that conversation is happening, people who look like you and I, white men, we're not, we're not as engaged in the conversation as we should be. Um, we, it's easy for us to step out of it. It's easy for us to kind of hide behind this veil of privilege and these things that have sort of helped us climb those ladders you talked about and get to these points without confronting these things head on. And I think we're doing ourselves personally and professionally and our whole sector and our friends across the sector a real disservice by not getting involved in that conversation. So I've been really going through a process of using my my very small corner of the fundraising world to try to speak out on the on these things and start conversations and you know knowing I'm never going to be perfect doing it knowing I've got the things that I need to work on myself but um trying to dive into it and and, and have as much of an honest conversation about these things as I can hopefully get other people like us to to kind of lean into it and get involved a little bit Okay, so some of my listeners, I'd say about 50, I'm going to guess that half my listeners know what we're talking about when we talk about CCF, our friends in Seattle, and about half my listeners probably don't know what the hell you're referencing. (laughs) So how about from your, you know, from from your vantage point, I know we've got some CCF friends in the St. Louis area, I know some of them and you do too. So I'm, I'm guessing that you're pretty versed in what they're talking about. So can you sort of unpack that for us real quickly? Yeah, absolutely. At least I hope I'm versed in, uh, you know, explaining explaining something that I'm I'm real. I mean, I admittedly am fairly new to, but yes, that's you know, fine. you know, you think of that sort of existing framework of donor centered fundraising, where when we tell our organization stories, we put the donor at the center of it, and kind of build them up. And community centered fundraising, to me, says instead of focusing on that donor is the is the driver of everything. It's about that word community. It's about the volunteers, the staff, the people we're serving, the stakeholders, and that 
the donor is a piece of that, but instead of having, you know, the donor elevated above everything and everyone else sort of at this lower rung, that instead you sort of build this group of equals where, yes, the donor matters, but you don't appreciate the donor at the expense of the other things and the other people that are driving the organization. And as part of that, when you reframe things along those lines, you then have to start asking questions about where do we challenge donors? Where do we push them? Where, when things are going on that aren't really in alignment with our mission or that aren't in alignment with our social goals, are we willing to step out and have those difficult conversations uh, to challenge some of those problematic assumptions that may exist or, um, you know, points where the community we're serving and the people who are funding us aren't necessarily seeing eye to eye. And it's a, to, to me, that's a really challenging call to us because we all know we're judged by the amount of money we raise Um, the amount of impact we're having from a quantitative standpoint. But it's as we think about where our sector is going and we think about the good we're ultimately trying to do, those are the kinds of conversations we have to engage in and the kind of philosophy I really think we have to incorporate into our work whenever we can. Okay. So I have been, uh, I've been working on a book project for quite some time and CCF isn't even sort of in any meaningful way sort of incorporated into that particular project. But the notion of donor-centered fundraising has been sort of central to some of the critique that I've been working on in that particular Mm -hmm. book, largely because um, I don't even think the phrase is in there directly as of yet, but I'm basically making the accusation that fundraising, contemporary fundraising has basically been too parallel just with the consumer economy. So we generally Mm -hmm. see the fundraising, the, the the, the donor, the donor and the consumer is sort of one in the same. And so when I see donor-centered fundraising, I think you're just talking about consume, you know, consumer best practices or something. Mm-hmm. And I think I think there's something far more meaningful going on. But and, and this is kind of the question I've been itching to ask someone like yourself, and I have yet to ask anyone this. But whether you were in the CCF camp or the donor-centered camp, does your employer even know that they're in either of those camps? <laughs> Because I don't know if it even matters. We've got lots of fundraisers out there and you see it and you've been a part of it. We see, we got a lot of fundraisers out there bantering over this stuff. I mean, some people are getting a lot of heat over it in one corner or another. And I'm thinking, yeah, but do any of your bosses even give a damn? That's a great question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think looking where I work, being, being a pretty grassroots organization, I would say we haven't hit that point in the growth cycle where I think we, we become a really donor-centered organization. Because I, I, I think I do associate that in a lot of ways with reaching a certain scale where you're reaching into those pools of donors where that's kind of the culture a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, where we are, I do think we are more community-centric because, you know, we have donors at all levels, obviously, but people come to us because of our mission, because they've been impacted by it in one way or another. And every bit of stewardship we do is geared toward that. It isn't, you know, I've seen it where major gift fundraising can be taking people out for drinks, uh, you know, taking them to whatever social event, kind of that more um, personal for lack of a better term that isn't connected to the mission, but is a little more connected to, uh, to building up the donor's ego a little bit more and making them feel personally appreciated. Where yeah. I, think, I think the way we try to approach things is we love the donors, obviously. I mean, they, they make our work possible. There's no way around it. But focusing that stewardship on their connection to a mission and ourselves being a conduit between them and the mission. And that's when, that's when fundraising becomes sustainable and that those things that we talked about earlier, that connection between organization and community becomes a lot easier to facilitate as you think about the donor's role in it, because the stewardship of that donor has always been about what they're doing for the mission and the community. It's never been about building them up and making them feel special. It's been about, we're trying to accomplish something together. So, but to your original question, you're right that I don't think a lot of our employers think about it that way because we're so people like you and I and everyone else in this profession are so out there hitting the pavement, doing this work, engaged in these conversations about philosophy and everything else. And it, it's kind of, it kind of becomes second nature for us, okay. to us after a while. So here's something for you yeah. to think about. So yeah. I, so every year, I think it's the nonprofit times, the nonprofit times publishes a list of the hundred 
it's kind of like within the nonprofit sector, the hundred most influential people in the sector, right? <clears throat> and I remember I saw this, you know, so every year you get a, you get your copy of the nonprofit times and you, and you see this art, you know, I look, I remember looking at this thing about a, a year, a, a couple of years ago. This was, this was probably 10, this could have even been 10 years ago and perhaps it's changed. And, I'll, and, and to be fair to anybody who's on the list, but Ben, one of the things I noticed when I looked at this thing 10 years ago was that of the hundred people that were on this list of the hundred people that are most influential in the sector, not a single one of them was from the fundraising space. Not a single one of them. And so I'm sitting here thinking that we in the fundraising space are sort of existing in these subcultures where we like to fight amongst ourselves over <laughs> things like donor-centered and versus community-centered, when in fact nobody really gives a shit what we think to begin with. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if, if, if I'm not on that list and if you're not on that list and your boss isn't on that list and the president of AFP isn't on that list and if VU isn't on that list, then – you know, if Gail Perry's not on that list, if none of these people are on that list, then does even some of this bantering around even really matter? It, or do we have a bigger fight to fight and it has to do with our boards and bosses and not really each other? Yeah, I I think you're onto something there with that. I, ha- I hadn't really considered it. That's a, that's a That's a good way to attack the problem, but I think you're right in the sense that you know, we, we can have these these arguments and the, it, it happens. And at the end of the day, though, we're still answering to the same groups of people. We're still trying to we all still have a number we have to hit. We all still have funds we yeah. have to raise. And right. Yeah. But but if we can but if we can establish basic principles among ourselves, I think part of the problem is that no two fundraisers set the same expectations and no two of us are willing to kind of put ourselves out there for the same things. And that leads to that churn that we see in this profession and that, you know, that, that number, I think not a single one of us works in this profession doesn't know that the average one of us only lasts 16 months in a job because, you know, as a profession, we can't, we don't have that cohesive, we have our code of ethics, but we don't have our approach that we share together and it becomes so easier to, so, so much easy so <laughs> got tripped up on words there. So easy to throw one person out and bring the next one in and just keep trying that until something sticks. So I do think it's valuable in the sense that if we can find common ground and we can, as a profession, have some form of commonality, it makes it easier for us to build sustainability in this profession. But but you're you're really onto something right there because there there are <laughs> I there like are to be on people I like in authority to be- over us. Yes. I, I like to be on to things. I like to be yeah. right, but that's not really what I'm, <laughs> what I'm trying to get, what I'm trying to get my guests to do. And generally what I'm trying to get my listener to do is think about this. So I have studied yeah. up on the CCF principles and I honestly believe, I genuinely believe, for example, on the point that you're making about uh turnover, I yeah. think if more organizations would subscribe to CCF's principles, we'd keep fundraisers around. Yeah. I think I, I just look at it and it just seems like a better value statement than some of the donor centered shit that I see out there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, but what I don't know, I don't even know if some of the folks that are, are sort of backing the CCF argument are willing to tell me that their employers, A, are, have subs- are subscribed to the same values. And I don't know, Ben, for example, if you are going to tell me you're going to, you're going to bail on the job if your boss says, no, we're a donor centered shop. I, I don't know that you're going to quit your job over that. No, but I but I think it I think it's one of those things that it, it isn't it isn't always an either or proposition. I mean, we can talk about the philosophies of these things. Sure, you know, every organization's a work in pro, work in progress, and I think you know every day going about our jobs, we we run into the things that really light a fire under us, and then the things that really frustrate us. So I don't know that it's as black and white as that. That, um, you know, certainly things happen that I think fall in a little more into the donor centered camp. And I try to take that as a chance to advocate, do a little bit of education and, you know, make progress wherever I can. And the things that aren't or that are the opposite happen. And I try to celebrate those as uh, ways I can use my position of leadership to build up better ways of doing things. But, you know, I, I think every every one of us sort of oscillates back and forth between those things on a pretty regular basis in our day jobs. 
I, I had a guest on here and I'm interested if, if to sort of hear your thoughts on this. So uh, I had a guest on here some, some time ago and we were talking about the same sort of issue. This, these two camps that sort of have surfaced largely in the midst of the pandemic, for example. And I wonder if, and I haven't seen either camp and no, and I've been, I've been fighting this fight since, you know, for, for two decades now, trying to sort of get people to sort of wrestle with this. <laughs> Ultimately, if it's not donor facing work, so you can call it community centered, you can call it donor centered, but ultimately, if it's not donor facing work, which means if you're not literally and routinely sitting across the lunch table with a donor, you're not going to achieve either of the goals that either of those camps sort of aspires to. And I think part of what both of those camps are still even to this day unwilling to do is tell me that they're going to put things like galas and golf tournaments and direct mail on the back burner in order to become more donor centered or community centered. Because as long as you're basically doing galas, golf tournaments and direct mail, to me, it just seems like you're all just doing the same stuff. Yeah. Right. You're still you're you're basically all interacting with your donors in an arm's length, not really having any meaningful engagement to the degree that you could even push a donor to do things in more accordance with one of those value statements or the other. Right. It's it's transactional fundraising. It's not relational fundraising. Yes. Yes. Totally. And that's a scary place for us because galas, golf tournaments and direct mail are. I want to I want to put all three on a rocket and shoot shoot them into the sun because they <laughs> drive me nuts. But but they raise money. They you know we're putting our development plan together for the year, and you know the the person who's willing to write off that huge line item for one of those is a braver person than me a lot of times. But that's the direction. Is that we need to be why? Moving. Okay, if 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 your boss doesn't keep you, is it going to be because he or she doesn't understand CCF or DCF, or is it because they don't understand that you want to put Gala's golf tournaments and direct mail on a rocket? <laughs> which is the real reason which is the real because right now we're talking about renewal rates the the uh the renewal rate study that comes out every year that recently came out and somebody in that indefinitely will every six months or so will put out an article about professional turnover but i think the reason that guys like you are leaving your job have nothing to do with whether or not the value structures are correct but it's because you're stuck in galas golf tournaments and direct mail yeah i mean that's yeah. <laughs> and, and I think you're right that, you know, that those those are the things that do matter more to the people in authority because they want to see the money. They, it's, it's, it's predictable. You know, yeah. I, I have, you know, for being in my early 30s, quite a few gray hairs in my head. And I attribute many of them to Galas. <laughs> and I but I don't think that, you know, I think that's that's how we're assessed because that's that's the money that becomes the mission. And, you know, there, there's a bigger picture to that. But did you get into fundraising to be an event planner? No, no, not at all. I mean, and I don't think any one of us did. And it's it's a necessary evil. But I do think a bigger point with that is we have to be prepared for those things to go away. Because I, I guarantee you, if we revisited this conversation in 20 years, we're not going to be talking about galas and golf tournaments being a driving factor in this in this sector. Because I think a generation of donors wanted that. It worked. People okay. enjoyed the community. They enjoyed coming together. But I think as you look at now the millennial generation moving into sort of that more prominent role and others and moving out of that role, I don't think it's going to work that way anymore. There's always going to be a place for events and there's always going to be an opportunity to have people together. But we've got to figure out what comes next because the culture is changing and everything around it is changing. And and we know all the stats about millennials being driven to give by impact, by sort of an idealistic view of the world. And you don't as much as you can bring a mission into a gala, you can't inspire people at the level we're going to need to inspire people to keep giving going for the next generation. And I don't know how we make that transition. I, I wish I could sit here and tell you I had that answer. Um, but we've got to be thinking critically about it now. And we've got to be thinking about selling it too to our leadership and to our boards because that's which is going to have to happen at some point, I think. Okay, go back to the dots you just connected there, because yeah. I don't think I've ever had anybody connect those dots. So is is the definition of, again, CCFs, and they're relatively new on the scene, yeah. so we don't have to pick on them, but we can pick on donor-centered stuff. Is, is donor-centered fundraising and, in your mind, basically galas and golf tournaments and direct mail because that's what the donor wants? Is that is that is that essentially the connection you're making that the that in many ways the – because I think in some ways I agree with you that 
the donor is sort of saying, this is how we'd like the relationship to work. This is what we respond to. And then we as an industry have now gone and sort of defined that as what is donor centered. Is that, is that essentially the dots you're connecting? Yes. And I, I think that any one of us who has planned a gala or planned an event like that has had that moment where, you know, a donor calls you at 10 o'clock at night because they're bringing 20 of their friends and they want to make sure the napkins look a certain way. So the event is, <laughs> is impressive. That, so that's donor centered fundraising to you yeah, is, the, yeah. is the stupid napkins. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it raises <laughs> okay. money. You can't deny yes. And it's, it's a challenging right. thing to sit here as a fundraiser and criticize because I'm in the midst of planning a gala myself for an organization I adore and the yes. committee I adore and all. And I don't want to, you know, be in any way critical of that, but, but there are those pieces of gala planning that, that you're right. I did. We didn't get into the fundraising profession to do those things. We did it because we have these big visions of social impact and people we want to serve and, you know, figuring out the napkin designs doesn't really feel like it feeds into that all that much, but yeah. And that's that, that really, I, I do think if you have to sum up DCF in one neat little story, I think that, um, I think that really does pull a lot of it in. Okay, so does your boss know that you want to sit at the lunch table routinely with individuals for whom you can impress upon them an agenda that your boss probably doesn't even think you can impress upon them? Like, is that because I think that's why a lot of our fundraisers gravitate towards this work because they're they, somewhere in the back of their mind they 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 sort of they sort of get the impression that they can change the world at the lunch table. I don't think that too many of us think that we can change the world with galas and golf tournaments, but I think in some ways there's a lot of people perhaps like yourself who genuinely see that lunch table as a change the world type of interaction. And I don't know that our boards and our bosses necessarily know that you maybe feel that way. Yeah. I'll say for where I am right now, yeah, so I do have leadership that's very supportive of that and does believe in those one-to-one connections. But okay. mostly because I mean my my boss is the founder and that's how our organization got off the ground was, you know, conversations with people that turned into relationships yes. that turned into fun. So they learned that themselves. Yeah, yeah, but but other places I've been in my career and people I've known and you know, having been doing this, I, I'd like to think long enough to have kind of a finger on the pulse. That's definitely not the way it is in most cases. That it I think some people just, to be blunt, just don't care that that there's a lot of leadership out there that says whether you build that relationship or you get the check in response to the direct mail piece, I don't really care. Who doesn't care, the donor or the fundraiser? The, the fundraiser or the, the people the fundraiser are answering to. Okay, you know, okay. All, all they want to see is a number on the balance sheet and that um, – you know, whatever's going to get that done the fastest and the mo- with the most dependability. And if, damn it, our direct mail appeal works every year, we're not going to stop doing it, then that's the way it's going to be. So- okay, but the, the job, okay the, but the job market's hot. And by the time this thing airs in mid-July, when this thing airs, the job market's just going to be even hotter. And you as a young fundraiser who is saying some of the things that you're saying, you're a hot prospect for an employer. And so how how, how do... How how do we make sure that boards and bosses sort of understand that? By the answer to that, I I have a lot fewer sleepless nights. I think, <laughs> but um, you know, I think here's Ben. Here, here's while 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 I have watched all this bantering over ideological frameworks in the midst of the pandemic, what I have yeah. also felt like as I listen to these conversations that I'm having with people like yourself is I think that there's a fundraiser like you going back to what I, the way I introduced this conversation when I started talking about the um, I think I think on the other side of for example your CFR CFRE credential I think fundraisers start waking up to the idea that our boss even either knows what they're doing or doesn't and I think that's what contributes to the turnover post say the first 5 years and the reason you're ultimately either going to stay in the job or leave the job isn't going to be because the ideological framework's going to be right it's because when it really comes down to it your boss just doesn't know how to get the job done or not. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, you're right about that. That's mirrored in a lot of people I know. And a lot of the things that I've kind of studied as I, yes, I, as frankly, I look at my career and you know, where, where yes. the it takes me. I think a lot of it comes down to, and got to talk about things that are easier said than done. A lot of it is expectation setting. A lot of it is the questions we ask when we interview of, 
okay, how do you make these decisions? How do you evaluate fundraisers? How do you how do you celebrate success and come back from failure and those kinds of things? And setting a tone from the very beginning of we as fundraisers are experts in what we do, that we're not here to just sort of, you know, be told to go out and talk to these people I tell you to and get a check from them and then it's all done. But that this there's a science to what we do and that, you know, we have to have a seat at the table when these decisions are made. And you know, we do have to have that willingness to walk away, even even though we talk about turnover being a problem in this profession, we have to have a willingness to walk away and make it known why we're walking away when those things happen. And and that's not an answer most of us want to hear because we all we all have jobs and we all need employment and need income and all that stuff. So but it, at its most basic level, I do think it's us asserting ourselves as people who have a lot of training and a lot of experience and, you know, college degrees and all that kind of stuff and um, not not allowing ourselves to be marginalized when we talk about fundraising. And, you know, kind of back to my original point, too, especially, you know, people come into it with privilege, you know, white men like us having the standing sometimes and the security that a lot of people are denied within organizations to to put our necks out there and say that I think something needs to be done a different way. Um, yeah. Not not an easy thing to do and something that I, I struggle with. I, I have failed to do at points in my career where I probably should have said things and I didn't, but that we always need to keep front of mind and always need to know that advocacy has to be a pretty core component of how we go about this job. Okay. Is that the reason, like what you just said, when I read the CCF values and I think about what I think the donor-centered values are, the CCF values are, it's harder work. It's honestly harder work. Yes. So is part of the reason why there's so much resistance in our space. And one of my guests here recently, basically sur- he had surveyed a general audience. This may be where you and I connected, for example, he surveyed a, the, the, the two camps and he got sort of like a 25, 75 sort of split between the two different camps. But I almost wonder if some of what the CCF camp is actually advocating for and some of the reasons some of us are who are staunchly in the donor-centered camp are, are opposed to is the fact that it's not really going to change the experience for the donor. Because I think ultimately, at the end of the day, we can honor the donor in either framework in my mind. Mm-hmm. But, the, but when you start talking about trying to impress upon and advocate for for ideas that are perhaps not currently in the minds of your donors um that's hard work and it's especially hard work when we're talking about five and six figure gifts for example right but that to me that to me when i talk when i'm talking to a guy like you who perhaps is on again going back to the cfre when i'm talking to somebody who's on the other side of the cfre and somebody who says i want to be in fundraising for the rest of my life perhaps I'm thinking that's what you got into this for to begin with. That's why you're here. Exactly. And, you know, taking out to the very big picture, I think you're right. You're so right that that's, that's such challenging work when you're talking about the people giving the really, really big gifts. And that's where I think you go back to the very beginning of the process and you talk about, like I talked about how we do at my current organization where, you know, we connect donors to the mission. It is the mission, the mission, the mission above everything else. And, Nonprofits need to hit a point, and I think I think something where you know community-centric fundraising really reaches its zenith is where organizations start not just giving direct service, not just fulfilling a mission kind of one-to-one with people, but attacking the underlying societal structures that create problems to begin with. Um, the analogy I always like to think of with this is that. You know, you'll see stories where a kid sets up a lemonade stand to pay for his mom's cancer treatment, and the news comes out, and it's celebrated as, look at what this kid is doing. That's so neat. Rarely do we ask the question of, why is this necessary? And in a civilized society, why does a kid have to raise money for their mom's cancer treatment? And that philanthropy sometimes exists in that same space where we have organizations out doing phenomenal work, helping a lot of people. But behind that work, there's something going on making that work necessary. If you want to talk about homelessness or addiction or just name, I mean, there's a whole laundry list of issues you could talk about. And that our organizations need to be involved in the work of advocacy to 
make a difference at a higher level. And those are the things where, you know, a donor may say, hang on a second, what what's going on here? I'm giving to a, you know, to a nonprofit, not a, not a lobbying group or a political group. And we have to be able to lean in and have those conversations and say, look, our mission is to do this. We're doing it when we're out working on the streets, but we're also doing it when we're lobbying our local elected officials or we're putting this op-ed out there, maybe, maybe challenging some conventional wisdom, but and those, those are the difficult conversations. And when your five or six figure donor comes to you and raises that question it is terrifying because it's, that's the last person you want to potentially have an issue. But at the same time, we're never going to get where we want to be if we're not doing those things. If we're always attacking problems on the surface and never going down to root causes and never willing to expose ourselves to controversy then the sector is going to always kind of be stuck. And I, and to the point earlier about events, as millennials reach more prominence and become more important in these organizations, that's going to be the expectation more than it is an outlier. And we, again, have to be, have to be thinking now about how we're going to do those things and how we're going to be willing to put ourselves out there and challenge conventional wisdom. Okay, so you talk about leaning in. I think, I mean, I've got two daughters, for example, my, my younger daughter is 13 and my older daughter is 13, yeah, 13 and 15 this year. And they have been watching, they have been sort of growing up on social media and in sort of this contemporary sort of framework that we all know and understand here in the, in the West. And they have been being told since the point that they could start making sense of all this to lean in. Right. And it's the same narrative that has sort of been playing out through in the midst of the pandemic that we're saying to people of color, to indigenous people, they're basically being told lean in, push the, push the envelope and those sorts of things. And I feel like what we're also starting to see in the professional communities and in the, and in, in our case, the fundraising communities, like you just said, we're being told to lean in. And so you and I can, yes, it's, it's, it's fair and appropriate to remind ourselves that we're white men and perhaps have, have some privilege, but at the same time, if we, if we wear this sort of this marginalized status of a fundraiser is, is part of what the message that's coming out of our, from our friends in, in Seattle, that's perhaps making the fundraising community a little nervous is that we're being told to lean in, that we're basically being told step up take advantage of the power that you have or that you can have and play the role that you're supposed to play. I mean, shoot, what does it matter? What does it matter if you're a well, a wealthy white guy of privilege fundraiser who just kowtows to the rich, wealthy white guys, right? I mean, that's really, no, there's no power in that. And I feel like that's kind of what we're all being told. Step up, play the game that maybe it needs to really be played um, and I wonder if some of our colleagues maybe been around a little bit longer than you and I've been really don't want to step up like that. Yeah, there, there's no power in it, but there's job security and there's money, I think. And those are, those are, hard things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, I, if I'm calling it what it is, and those are, those are hard things to come by sometimes in our profession, that money, not necessarily, but job security. We, we all know that, you know, we all know that we're one missed goal away from being back out on the job hunt again. So it's e and it's easy, especially as white men, to build a career doing that because the people we're trying to solicit look and sound and act like us. And there's a natural fit there. And I, but I think to your point about why we got into fundraising, I didn't get into fundraising to do that. I didn't. I, don't, I didn't I, either. I, yeah, I don't. I don't care about people's egos. I don't care about making people <laughs> feel good about themselves. I want to, you know, I want to change the world. Damn it! And that's probably still very young and naive of me to say, but it's why every one of us is out here doing this. So, you know, it, it's important, I think, for all of us to step back and reflect a little bit about on what got us into this profession. And I back to your original point about being that sort of ten-year fundraiser, thinking about where the future goes. I know yeah. that I don't want the future to take me in that direction. It'd be easy to do, and it's it is easy to do. And I, um, you know, I know people who've been fundraising for a long, long time, and I respect them and love them. And I don't think any of them fall into that space. But we have to be constantly reinventing ourselves and, and assessing where we stand with our employers and with the missions and with the profession and everything, because 
otherwise it's it's kind of a trap we can fall into where money and security become um become the driving forces in what we do yeah so where where are you in 10 years where's a guy like you in 10 years you know i think that changes every day when i ask myself that um <laughs> are you, you know, you're I, still in you're still in fundraising you're still, still in, in non- oh absolutely okay. i've okay. I, i'm too stubborn to walk away from fundraising um you know i i I'd like to think I have enough of a vision for this that I'm out there um, helping organizations and helping fundraisers implement these kinds of ideas um, as a consultant or something else. But, you know, doing my own thing, taking on a leadership role in this profession, um, you know, still figuring out what that looks like, figuring out, you know, how exactly we put some of these things into action and how it becomes a marketable thing and all that stuff. But, um, you know, if, if I if I had to sit down and kind of, map the ideal path forward for me that that's where it ends up there's a um there's an author there's an author his name's john hagel i talk about him periodically on the podcast he's in the silicon valley he's not in the fundraising space um he talks about and just just having briefly talked to you here and talked to you a little bit on social media you strike me as, as maybe somebody who sort of fits the bill but he talks about what he calls the passion of the explorer and the passion of the explorer is about he he his research has basically revealed that about 14% of our general work working population so he's looking at everybody in every industry across the board about sets about 14% of the population sort of fits in this box of the passion of the explorer and what and what I think I'm sort of picking up on, and the guy that I recorded with earlier today and the, the woman that I recorded with yesterday, I think they sort of fit the bill as well. Um, they're, 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 they're committed to the domain, right? So the, the, what, what he talks about, it, there's three characteristics for the Passionate Explorer, one of which is a staunch sort of laboring commitment to the domain, which means you're not sort of riding the fence on fundraising versus sales. And you're, you're sort of not in, you know, so you're not sort of thinking about maybe going over to the program side. And I think the people that are the most, this is what I'm getting at here with this comment. I think that the people that I probably want to most hear from when it comes to these ideological debates like CCF versus DCF, I think those are the types of people that I want to hear from those people who are staunchly committed to the particular domain that we're in. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I think when I talk to a guy like you who says, I'm going to be in this for 10 years, I'm stubborn as hell. I don't know necessarily if one of these ideologies is right. And I don't know if necessarily I'm working, you know, I, I don't know, but, but, but is that kind of where you're and And that's what I, that's, that's kind of where we started with too. Um, I, I think we're all sort of in this sort of this messy space where the fundraising profession is sort of in its messy adolescence, as I sometimes call it. And a guy like you strikes me as somebody who perhaps 10 years out is going to have a team of gift officers working for you. Um, and it's going to be remarkable. Their experience as young fundraisers perhaps could be remarkably different than yours. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, I like the idea of of an explorer of you know sticking with something because this 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 work is something that spoke to me from from the time I first started thinking about it not not knowing going from not being quite sure what I wanted to do to knowing that this is exactly where I want to be warts and all and that yeah I, I do hope so. I do hope ten years down the road people getting into the profession are doing it with a much um, a much clearer vision and more access to training. I've been immensely lucky to have mentors and friends who have trained me and given me the uh, sort of professional lift up that I don't think a lot of people have in this and that hopefully wherever I go, I'm able to build something that leads in that direction where people are getting into this profession, uh, marrying their passion with structure and with philosophy and with organizations that appreciate the work they put in. So, and and I, I do think that that's the direction this sector is heading. I'm, I'm an optimist by nature, and I think that good ideas are becoming more and more prominent every day. And I'm, I, I, I think that that's where we're going to end up. Okay. Uh, before I let you go, with with all these sort of banterings going on, what what is the, what in your mind is sort of the number one thing that we've got to fix? I mean, is it, do we need to, do we need to continue to sort of push ourselves into these corners? 
Um, are, are galas and golf tournaments really the guilty party? Um, you know, what, what is it that we got to, I, I tend to, I tend to be the type of uh, my argument. I'll answer the, I'll answer my own question before you jump in there and maybe you'll concur, but I don't know. I tend to think that if we could keep our fundraisers in their place for longer than those 24 to 36 months, you know, the, the, whatever the averages are, right? I think if we could keep our fundraisers in their roles, for longer periods of time, and then at that point, allow them to drive the conversation more based on their tenure, which means if the people at the next AFP conference that you went to, for example, if the, if the, if the requirement wasn't whether they were credentialed or looked like they subscribed to all the right codes and all that sort of stuff, but they just demonstrated that they had been in their current job for say longer than three years, I think you'd actually change the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, and that's about changing organizational cultures too. We've got, we've got to change culture so that people are supported and stay in their jobs longer because you're absolutely right. It can't be that, you know, we go to next year's conference and we see where everybody's working since we saw them the year before. And the, exactly. It's like, yeah. right. You walk around the comp, it's like you walk around the, uh, what's it, the exhibit hall and you gotta, <laughs> before you can even start having a meaningful conversation, you gotta find out if they're even working for the same people again. <laughs> right. And so that's, that's really a core thing. And through that, we have to, we have to have the difficult conversations about systemic racism. We have to have difficult conversation about conversations about who we listen to as an organization, where we get ourselves involved, how we relate to society on a broader level. And then we have to figure out where fundraising is 20 years from now. And I, someday I'm going to do my last gala and I'd like to, I'd like to think that'll be, um, you know, something that's very deliberate and planned and that where we can say, okay, from now on, we're fundraising a different way. Um, and I realize that's like three or four different things I just gave you instead of one, but they do all kind of fall together. And that if we can change the culture and if we can find ways to exert some leadership in our, in our organizations, we can, um, you know, we, we can really start to chip away at all those things and get fundraising out of that adolescence you talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Ben, you're at 45 minutes. You've kept up with me. You know, I laid <laughs> it on thick and that's what I do, this is great. Uh, but you, you kept up with me and, uh, and I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I'm as excited to see where you're at in 10 years as you may be to see where you're at in 10 years. <laughs> um, and you're, you're, you're just, you're, you sort of fit the profile of the person I've been writing to for the last, decade or so in the books that I've been working on. Um, and you're also the audience that I'm typically uh, assuming that I'm, I'm speaking to. So I really, I really sit next to me to read it. So good. Now, now they know it's addressed to me. I'm extra excited to dive into it. So. Right. Okay. So if you, right. So you've got, so that, that, that's the book, that's the book that I'm talking about. That's that book that if, if you notice, for example, when you're, when you're, when you're thumbing through that, um, I don't tackle boards and bosses, for example. Some people have noted, you know, hey, Jason, why didn't you address the board dynamic? Because quite frankly, I don't think all of our problems are board related. I think these organizations like the one you work for, for example, sounds like it's relatively established. You're employing people. And what it really comes down to is, and this is what you're going to read in that book, is that if we can get if we can get your relationship with your boss right and we can get you in front of that donor and we can allow you to shine the way you presumably sound like you want to shine, the boards, are, for the most part, can sit back and, and just watch. Um, that's why I chose not to address the boards in that book, for example. Right. Um, right. And, and I think I think when you look at these competing ideologies and stuff, I'm like, okay, that's fine. We can debate these things, but let's bring them down to the ground and show me how a guy like Ben's actually going to carry them out. Um, you know, that's why when we started this podcast a couple of years ago, I wanted to talk to the people who were who had boots on the ground who were telling me, you know, this is how I get the job done. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Well, well, good. I'm I'm extra excited to read it now. <laughs> <laughs> It does. It it it's uh and the new one that's coming out in the fall, and I'm not promoting the new one a whole lot yet, but I talk about it periodically, the research that's going into it. Um, I was committed to getting twice as much content into the the second one. That one, the one in your hands, only about 115 pages. So I, I said I've got to get a 200 page book out there and, 
at fundraisers, you know, we're very verbal, so we can run our mouths all day long, but it's hard to write. So, um, Ben, I have I have enjoyed I've enjoyed this conversation. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. You've really kept up with me. Um, one of the things you'll appreciate is, is you get to listen to yourself afterwards. So you'll be really eager to listen. You, you've said some pretty brilliant stuff. Um, and, and so my, my listeners are certainly grateful for that. If somebody who's listening, if somebody who's listening is interested in reaching out to you, they know how to find me, but they want to know how to find you. How would you suggest that they do that? Yeah. Uh, you can shoot me an email, uh, Ben Chambers 411 at gmail.com. And I'm also, um, in addition to my day job, I do a little bit of freelance work with a group called Team Cat and Mouse. That's K A T and Mouse. So it's teamcatandmouse.com. Um, yeah. And, and what, what, you gotta, in. you gotta, I, I'm, do you gotta explain that one to me? <laughs> so the, uh, people who, who started this, they're, uh, a brand new consultant operation. Um, and the, those are their, um, they're, they're nicknames, so kind of, okay, a, kind of a fun okay. little play on that. So yeah, I've connected with them, and we're having a lot of fun, and um, yeah, helping them. So it's out a consulting. Stuff, so. so it's a consulting shop. Yeah, is yep. that right? It's yep. a consulting yep. shop. So okay, doing that on the side in addition to my day job, keeping uh, keeping myself busy. But uh, yeah, and I'm also on LinkedIn all the time, so you can find me on there. And uh, yeah, I'd love to connect with anyone. All right. Well, we'll make sure to put um, we'll put some links in the show notes uh, for the consulting firm and everything else if you'd like me to. And uh, you're great. always welcome back. Thanks so much, Jason. I appreciate it. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.